This morning we continue our series of messages from the Beatitudes, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to take the bulletin insert, and we're going to read this together congregationally, as we have been doing. This comes from the King James Version, largely because of its poetic beauty, and it's probably the version that most of you learned from. And so I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We do this because this is Holy Scripture, and we'll read this passage from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 12, together. Here now is the word of the Lord. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, and please be seated. So this is now week five of this multi-week series of messages from the famous passage known as the Beatitudes. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he also, at least later on in the passage, there's a group gathering to listen, and they're referred to as the multitudes. It comes from the opening section of a much larger discourse. It's considered part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We've discussed how these Beatitudes speak of the characteristics, the descriptors of a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. We talked about how they have two parts. They have a descriptor and a result. In today's verse, the descriptor is blessed are the merciful. The result is for they shall obtain mercy. But one aspect we really haven't talked a lot about is how they are actually in three different categories. I don't know if you noticed that. It describes the way that, first of all, somebody who becomes a true believer in verses 3 through 5, they are, are poor in spirit. In other words, they're not prideful. They mourn over the sin and the impact of sin in their lives. They have a sense of humbleness and meekness, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And then, in verse 6, they experience a condition of true humility which is followed by the second category that John covered so well last week. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then finally, the third category of descriptors, which covers how a Christ-likeness is present in their lives, present in the sense that they are merciful, they have a purity of heart, they seek to be a peacemaker. Now, in the case of today's verse, this means that mercy comes from a heart that has already experienced and accepted its own spiritual emptiness. 
the person has come to grieve and mourn, mourn over their sinful condition. They cry out for God's mercy. So what I'm really getting at is that we extend mercy to one another because God has extended his mercy to you and to me. The path to becoming a merciful person is to first have been a, a broken person who's truly repented of their sinful state. We gain the desire and I would argue even the ability to extend mercy after we realize that without God's love and Christ's atoning death on the cross, that we are lost. We extend mercy because mercy has been extended to us. But sometimes we have words that we hear them so much and we're not entirely familiar with what they mean. What does mercy really look like? Well, to understand a concept, there are times that we need to, um, we need to look at it through the lens of what it is not of what it is not. And so, what we're going to do here is look at a few other passages. This is Matthew 9, verse 11 to 13. Jesus sits down to a meal and a number of tax collectors and other sinners who are not yet believers. They sit down with him at the very same table. Oh no! And it describes here, and I'm going to paraphrase it, it says, later, Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. And along with them are tax collectors and other disreputable folks. And the Pharisees see this and they ask his disciples, they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears this and he answers them. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he adds this passage. He says, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. And then a fairly well-known line where he says, For I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but who know that they're sinners. And in this particular passage, the contrast between mercy is offering sacrifices. And it's actually a reference it's a reference to Hosea 6.6 from back in the Old Testament. God tells the people their love is like the dew on the grass. It, it's there for a brief time and then it's gone. And all that's left is the empty form of sacrifices and burnt offerings. So Jesus views these people as that they're ill. They're in need of a physician. And his point is that he has the cure for their illness. But the Pharisees, they're watching this. And they're seeing Jesus eat with these, shall we call them, non-approved individuals. And all that they can see is the bad optics of being seen with some of these people. Because, see, the lens through which they viewed life, that the life of the Pharisees had basically degraded to the point where they really were just being rule quoters. All they were doing was forgetting what the rules really meant and why they came to exist in the first place. Jesus, instead, was focusing on providing the cure to the fatal condition that they had, that we have, the condition known as sin. Now, let's look at another example of this idea. It's from Matthew 23, verse 24, uh, verse 23 and 24, and it's, it's a pretty well-known passage. Jesus is speaking to these people, and he really calls them out. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? And then he calls them for what they are, hypocrites. He says, you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, 
but you ignore the more important, classic translations call it the weightier, aspects of the law. And he lists them, justice, mercy, faith. And then in verse 24, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you willingly swallow a camel. There's a lot of imagery here. But when Jesus says you strain at gnats and you swallow camels, I think one of the points is that a preoccupation with rules cripples the extending of mercy. Here's one of the challenges, is that there are otherwise good churches that have a certain number of modern-day Pharisees walking around in those churches. Some of them occupy the pulpit. And the amount that they love their rules exceeds what they love their scriptures. Jesus says to them, you've omitted the more important aspects of the law. He means he wants us to focus on what really matters. We should focus our time and our prayer on these, these weightier matters, is the way that the King James Version worded it, mercy being among them. Let me give you one more illustration of this. It's from a well-known parable of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this, a teacher of the law stands up, and he basically tries to put Jesus on the spot. And he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with a question. He says, how do you understand what's written in the law? And the man answers, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus responds by saying, correct, right answer. This do and you shall live. But the man feels like Jesus kind of put him in his place. So the man responds with this question. He says, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus then answers with this parable, the Good Samaritan. By the way, at some point when we get past the first of the year, I will be planning a series of messages on the parables of Jesus, this being one of them. But here's what happens in there. It says, And Jesus answering him said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, and when he was in the place, he looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And those last few words are the key points. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. In this famous parable, we're really seeing four aspects of mercy. The priest and the Levite did not show them. This man from Samaria did. The first aspect is mercy sees distress in verse 33. It says, when he saw him. But mercy responds with compassion, a heart of compassion for the person in distress. So much so that there's a practical effort to provide some relief. It goes on to say, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. But consider one additional aspect of mercy and that is that it means taking this action even when the person in distress is somebody who probably wouldn't have done the same if the situation was reversed. Watching out for distress in others, having a heart of compassion, making an effort to help even for somebody who you might consider an enemy. Those are four important aspects of mercy. 
And we have to remember something. The mercy God extended to you and to me happened while we were yet still sinners. While we were technically considered enemies of God. So this parable makes a very similar point to Matthew 9, 13, where Jesus said, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We are to show mercy like the Samaritan, not like the Levite or the priest. So to answer that question, what is mercy? It means that we need to focus on the weightier matters of the law, not the trivial matters. This is sometimes neglected when we get so focused on earthly issues, for example. Earthly issues like politics, like family bickering, family bickering about things that in this life really don't mean all that much and in eternity mean absolutely nothing. A trivial matter is something that gets in the way of our ability to focus on the weightier matters, such as extending mercy. When we're not focused on nitpicking and rule quoting, we're more likely to follow God's call to see distress, to extend compassion, to offer relief, even to somebody who probably wouldn't have done so for us. Now, this is a complex challenge for us because we're living in this sinful, fallen world. And until Christ returns, there's probably going to be a mixture of two things in our lives, a mixture of justice and mercy. You know, sometimes God allows us to receive better than we deserve. You're familiar with Dave Ramsey, the radio talk show host on financial matters. People call him and say, how are you today, Dave? And he says, better than I deserve. And he's right. And it's the same for you and for me. Sometimes God allows us to receive what we deserve, whether that be combination of the consequences of what we've done. By the way, reward can be what we deserve too. But very often he allows us to receive better than we deserve. Now that being said, please hear me. Mercy does not mean we get away with something. Mercy means we are guilty, but the one who is in a person to dispense justice chooses to not give us the full measure of that because they love us and because it serves a greater purpose. That is mercy. When you and I extend mercy, we're remembering that God is a God of mercy. So you might ask, how do I know? How do I know when I'm supposed to bring justice, when I'm supposed to bring mercy? Parents wrestle with this all the time. Employers wrestle with this all the time. Squabbles within our extended families, we wrestle with this all the time. But one of the purposes of God's word is to produce a certain character in us. We read God's word in the context of what it was written, and then we seek to see things through God's eyes with wisdom and discernment that only the Holy Spirit can give us. So to demonstrate this idea, I'm going to share with you a famous band rehearsal story. Why are you not surprised, right? And it's a story about a rehearsal in a, a famous university symphonic band back in the 1960s, and the clarinet section was having an, a very difficult time with a passage. I can even tell you what the passage was. It was the band arrangement of one of Johann Sebastian Bach's famous organ toccatas, the toccata and fugue in D minor. The clarinet parts are extraordinarily difficult. And they're working at it, and the director of the band, who to this day is still a legend, 
he said, take care of these problems before the next rehearsal. And it was a fair expectation. The challenge was they got to the next rehearsal, and he takes them through a couple of warm-ups, and he turns and he says, clarinets, play that passage. Well, it wasn't much better. And then he started to use a technique known as going down the line. Any of you that ever played in a school band might be familiar with that. He had each player play the passage by themselves. Oddly, the first chair player didn't have to play initially. The director saved him for last. And when the first chair player played, he made one little mistake. And the director moved him down several chairs. All the other people in the section were absolutely terrified, afraid that was going to happen to them. But the first chair player was brokenhearted. He had spent years working for that position. He had a bad day. He made one small error. Now, I share the story because what the band director did may or may not have been justice because he had knowledge of other factors that none of us know. But his method of doing so and the demeanor of this particular director, who was infamous for his temper and his harshness, his methodology showed no mercy. For example, he could have leaned over and said to his first chair player, see me in my office after class. I want to talk to you privately. And in that conversation, he could have said, what's going on? This is not like you. Is there something in your life happening that I should know about? And he could have had that conversation. It might have still been appropriate to move him down a few chairs, but at least to talk about a plan that if you show me you can address these issues, we'll talk about restoring your chair placement. Those would have been mixing justice with mercy, wouldn't they? But apparently it never happened. The poor guy lost several chairs, and as I know from people who were there, they've said he never did gain it back. There was no mercy. But what this beatitude suggests is that in the heart of a true believing Christian, a heart of mercy will be evident even when dispensing a certain level of justice. So this is how we should look at mercy. But the one other part of the beatitude, the result, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The people who will obtain mercy are those who have been merciful to others. Now, as salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, why do only merciful people obtain mercy from God? Does this imply salvation by works? Do we earn mercy by being merciful? My answer to you would be no. For one thing, the idea of earned mercy is a contradiction in terms. Mercy isn't earned. It's an unmerited gift. Because one day you and I stand before God, and if we placed our trust in Jesus Christ, he welcomes us into his presence because we've responded to the call of the Holy Spirit. We've repented of our sins. We've trusted in Christ as our Savior. And that's the point of these Beatitudes. They're speaking about those who have become truly believing followers of Jesus Christ. They speak not about the cause of their salvation, but about the effect of their salvation. Last point. Mercy has a sense of thankfulness about it. No matter how difficult our lives might be, let's not limit our thankfulness to earthly matters. Focus on the blessing that God's loved us and called us to a saving faith. Focus on what we might be facing throughout all eternity if God had not loved you and I so much that he sent his only begotten son to pay a debt that he did know 
because you and I owed a debt that we could not pay. God has extended mercy to me. He's extended it to you. Mercy of a very high divine nature, it's beyond our ability to fully grasp. And this is why when we as humans, but as Christian believers, have to dispense, dispense a certain amount of justice to those that we may have some level of authority over, we do so with a sense of mercy and love, knowing that God has had mercy on us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Why? Because they are the poor in spirit. They are the meek. They are those that mourn. They are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the pure in heart. They are the peacemakers. And they shall obtain his mercy because they are the children of God. Saved by his grace, redeemed by his Son, called by his Holy Spirit. All to his glory, to which God's people emphatically together in one voice said, Amen. Amen.